You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to another COVID-19 special episode of The Good GP, brought to you in conjunction at the moment with the Just a GP podcast. I'm Christina and today I am joined by Dr. Angie Burkout, a paediatric infectious disease fellow at the Queensland Children's Hospital and currently with the role of the COVID-19 fellow. Uh, Hello. (laughs) Hi, Angie. (laughs) Welcome. Thanks very much for joining us. And today we're going to be chatting around uh, COVID-19 and the impacts on paediatric population. So just as a disclaimer to let everyone know, we are recording this podcast on the 18th of April 2020. And so any information presented in this podcast is up to date as of today. Now, let's get started, Angie. So the first thing I wanted to ask you was around how many kids at this stage have actually been affected by COVID-19. What do we know about the data? Yeah, so um, we don't, unfortunately, we don't know exact numbers of paediatric cases at the moment. So don't forget the bubble have been providing a really great up-to-date resource each week, basically summarising all the paediatric literature to date. And basically what they've shown is, as of Friday, it was just released yesterday, that there's been about 66 case reports or case series data reported in the literature so far. And last time I counted, which was this week, there were over 2,000 laboratory confirmed cases. But I think we need to be careful with analysing that as particularly I think in the Chinese data, there has been some replicates of um, cases that have been used in a few of the different case series. But I think what's really interesting and that what we're seeing time and time again with the literature that is emerging from different countries in the world. So initially we had some two really big papers that came out of China. So the Nedjim paper by Lu et al, which basically showed that over 72,000 cases that they had of suspected or confirmed COVID, so not all those cases were laboratory confirmed cases, but only 1% were in that 10 years or younger. And also I think what was really reassuring was that basically the cases were less severe as well. So there was one death in that case series data and basically that death was in the context of the child having intersusception and multi-organ failure, so unrelated to COVID. And I think basically subsequent to that, that's been shown time and time again. So the Italian paper that came out, so Livingston et al. And so once again, they showed that a minority of their cases were in that zero to nine year age group. And there were no case fatalities in that group as well. And then that's also been recently shown as well in the CDC data from America. So minority of cases are occurring in kids, less severe cases in paediatrics. So I think all this data has been showing the same thing, which is really reassuring, I think, in terms of just realising that that not only is the disease that we're seeing in paediatrics a lot different to what we're seeing in the adult population, but kids seem to be affected less commonly as well. So what about risk factors for actually contracting the virus? I appreciate that you're saying that it's not a huge prevalence in the paediatric population. Out of those children that do seem to be affected, does there seem to be any underlying risk factors or, you know, it is random? Yeah, so in terms of risk factors for acquiring the infection in paediatrics, so also reassuringly that out of all the data that's been reported in paediatrics to date of paediatric cases, over 90% have happened in the context of there being a household adult contact who had COVID. And we've definitely seen that even in our cases that we've had in Queensland. So it's all been in the context of having a contact with a parent who had COVID or an adult contact, a close contact with COVID. 
So to date, there has been no evidence of child transmission of COVID, um, which is really interesting because I think, um, you know, usually whilst these little kitties are very cute, um, they can be the vectors of infection. And we're really not seeing that with COVID. So it's really interesting. Yeah, that is really interesting. And I was going to talk to you about this idea Mm. of the super spreader child, because Mm. that is something that we've kind of heard probably in the media quite a bit around this idea that children could be super spreaders of this virus, Mm. even if they might have minimal symptoms or be asymptomatic, and therefore they're actually a a bit of a danger when it comes to the spread of the virus. So so would you say there's much evidence really to support that then? So I think there's no evidence to support that at the moment. And I think, um, so you know, obviously with this is a constantly evolving process. And so we have to keep seeing what's being published in the literature. But um, to date, there has been no evidence that children are the super spreaders. And I think that um, there's also some data that's come out that's quite reassuring. So basically, there's Japanese, Korean, and also recently data from Iceland. They looked at cases where children had had a contact with an adult case of COVID and looked at the proportion of the children that had it. And it was really interesting, once again, just showing that minority of the children seem to be catching COVID, which is really interesting. And then even recently in um, so this week there was um, data that came from Iceland published once again in Nedjum which was also really reassuring so um, it was really interesting data so they kind of um, had three stages to their data collection so initially what they'd done is kind of what we were doing so it was basically testing based on risk factors so travel history or contact with someone with COVID and if they were symptomatic and then subsequent to that they opened up testing really to community to see what was happening at a community level and what was really interesting that even in their asymptomatic cases less than 12 years of age there were no cases of pediatric COVID that were confirmed so this is I think also we need to be a little bit careful with interpreting this data because once again we're using PCR to see whether patients have coronavirus and I think what will be really interesting to see will be some seroprevalence studies um, that I think will come out hopefully hopefully soon and then we'll know for sure but at the moment there's no evidence to you know to suggests that children are super spreaders but we have to keep an open mind yeah great so really interesting i guess as health professionals to be able to provide the most up-to-date and accurate advice to our patients who are very worried mm-hmm. who might have heard these kinds of stories in the media mm-hmm. and you know from um the non-expert advice that they hear around the community so it is actually i think helpful information for gps to be aware of where the literature currently is sitting in that space and advise parents accordingly. And I think another worry that we're commonly getting asked as well is this concept of asymptomatic transmission. And I think another really important thing to be aware of is in the studies, number one, so we're obviously seeing that a proportion of patients have asymptomatic disease, but I think we do have to be a bit careful where interpreting um, the data in terms of the percentages of patients that have asymptomatic disease, because a lot of these patients, they're obviously only looking at them at a certain time period. So potentially at that time they were asymptomatic, but then they haven't followed them through the whole disease course to see whether they develop symptoms. But then also I've noticed in my reading where patients are being labelled asymptomatic, but they had symptoms and were likely pre-symptomatic. So I think we also have to be a bit careful with interpreting that. And um, there has been no evidence to suggest asymptomatic transmission. And I think we just need to go back to basics, which is, yes, um, there have been studies that have shown that potentially the viral load of someone in the throat is the same with someone that's symptomatic versus asymptomatic. But going back to basics, 
logistics, how do you transmit a virus and particularly an upper respiratory tract virus, you've got to be symptomatic. So you're coughing, you're sneezing. And I think that we just need to remember that. And I think a lot of these patients that have been labelled that it was asymptomatic transmission, they were symptomatic and there has been no evidence to suggest asymptomatic transmission. Yeah. Okay. So really helpful. Now let's talk around the actual course of illness, you know, moving into what can we be telling parents to expect if a child is diagnosed with COVID-19, what's the likely course of how the illness is going to progress and for them in terms of recovery? So the disease we're seeing in paediatrics is very different to what they're seeing in the adult population. So we're seeing a very milder disease in paediatrics. So not only are children getting it less um, often, they're getting a very mild disease. And that mild disease could be that they're asymptomatic or I think more commonly that they'd have a fever and a mild cough. We have been seeing a subset of patients as well, paediatric patients that have had um, gastroenteritis, so um, diarrhea and fever. So just to be aware of that. But we're really not seeing the severe end of the spectrum. So in adults, really what they're seeing is that that day seven to day 10, that there is a subset of patients that can go on to develop um, an ARDS uh, picture. And we're really not seeing that in paediatrics. And like I was saying before, we're seeing that um, there, there doesn't appear to be the amount of deaths that we're seeing in adult population. So it's, once again, it's really hard to know um, how many paediatric deaths related to COVID have been reported in the literature. So as I said earlier on, there was a paper um, from Lou et al, which reported one death, but it was in the context of intersusception and multi-organ failure. And subsequent to that, um, there have been um, two other deaths that were reported in China, but once again, we're unclear as to whether it was related to COVID and then I was aware of two other deaths that have happened in the States but unfortunately we don't have great data telling us about well how many deaths are actually happening in paediatrics but I think we what we can see is that um, the case fatalities are happening in older age groups and not in paediatrics. And you mentioned about the gastrointestinal symptoms Mm -hmm. so you know in terms of the most common presenting symptoms in the paediatric population is it still most commonly going to be the fever and the cough maybe a sore throat but then potentially be considering this with the diarrhea type of illness as well or are you actually seeing more even numbers in terms of those presenting symptoms no most most commonly would be fever cough sore throat um, so kind of non-specific upper respiratory tract illness uh, symptoms and just to be aware that there is a subset of patients who are presenting with diarrhea Okay. So what about, you know, for the GPs out there that are listening in terms of practical advice, what should they be talking to the parents about the children in terms of, you know, how this can be managed, especially as we move into increased numbers, not every case is being managed in hospital. There are a lot of virtual wards being set up. Mm -hmm. So they are getting check-ins, you know, potentially with hospital staff, but for the GPs that might be providing care in the community, you know, especially with telehealth and the surge in the use of that by GPs out there so they will be supporting these families as well what sort of practical advice can you give for those GPs to be able to talk to the parents about so I think we really should be reassuring families so understandably there is a lot of anxiety amongst um, patients and families but I think we really can reassure them that so far what we are seeing and of course this is a constantly evolving um, space that we need to keep an eye out on what literature is coming through but so far we can um, reassure them that children appear to be getting the infection less commonly and that the infection that we're seeing in children isn't as severe as what we're seeing in 
adults and actually we're seeing a very mild infection so a bit of a sore throat a bit of a cough and um, potentially fever as well so I think really reassurance is key and I think something it's I think it's really about going back to the basics and really we should be washing our hands trying to avoid touching our face and that's very easy to say to an adult and obviously very hard for little kids that want to touch everything but um, I think really we should be reassuring families and I think the other thing we really need to be reassuring families is that the infections that we are seeing um, with you know confirmed COVID is patients that have either had travel history or the child has had a um, contact with a confirmed case of COVID and also and it's really interesting even recently we had a um, teleconference with um, some physicians at Great Ormond Street in London and you know obviously London are seeing a lot more cases than what we've been seeing and interestingly as of last week they'd only seen 14 pediatric cases and that's similar to what we've seen we've only seen seven pediatric cases at the Queensland Children's Hospital that have been confirmed cases and all of those cases were in the context of the parent having COVID-19 so I think really we should be reassuring families. Great and in terms of school exclusion around a confirmed case I know that the general advice is around sort of the 10 days since onset of illness and at least three days symptom free any change in that from a paediatric perspective would that still be relevant? Yeah so that's um so what we follow is the CNA um, national guidelines so I'm always checking every day just to see if there's any updates but at the moment what they're what we're recommending is that the patient um, needs to be day 10 from um, onset of symptoms and so for the asymptomatic patients we're counting from when their test was performed and so and then they have to be symptom free for 72 hours. Excellent. And another, I guess, question feeding, you know, around some of that practical advice, a question I hear come up around expectant mothers and maybe um, mothers of young infants or younger children who might be breastfeeding or wanting to breastfeed and they're concerned about transmission in that context mm. if they were to have COVID-19. The advice at the moment for breastfeeding mothers, could you touch on that as well? Yeah, so it's um, so there's been no evidence that there's been no coronavirus PCR detection in breast milk to date and so at this time it is safe and we would be recommending um, parents to breastfeed and wouldn't be recommending against it and once again it just comes back to doing the basics well and how we really should be treating if a mum did have an upper respiratory tract illness with a newborn baby. So the mum having um, good hand hygiene and potentially if she did have upper respiratory tract illnesses while she was breastfeeding the baby, the other thing to to consider if she did have it would be wearing a mask if the baby was really close. Um, So I think it's really just about going back to basics. Great. Angie, thank you so much. Such a helpful podcast, very knowledgeable, uh, wealth of information in terms of the paediatric population and the impact this is having, you know, with the world literature and what's happening in Australia at the moment. So I really appreciate your time today. No worries at all. See you. Bye.